I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Lieutenant Junior Grade Daniel Alistair Caffey in A Few Good Men. That's my name. I know. I was so thrilled to hear it. You don't hear Alistair very often. You really don't. You hear Elizabeth a lot. It came up in this film, in fact. Uh, yes. Yeah. Jessup's sister. Yes. That was Who a surprise. going to have dinner with, I guess, in a very <laughs> casual conversation. What a pleasure to have dinner with that guy. Right? right? <laughs> what a chill time you're going to have at some little bistro out there on the Potomac. Maybe she's busy that night. <laughs> so here we are with a few good men. Something we've been looking forward to, I think, since we started this Absolutely. podcast. Any thoughts on Aaron Sorkin? Okay. I have so many thoughts on Aaron Sorkin, you can't just start like that. <laughs> I think it's the only way to start. Yes. So you and I are both screenwriters, so we have a lot mm-hmm. of thoughts about screenwriting, and I think we both agree that Aaron Sorkin is maybe the best at writing just like sharp dialogue, like maybe the best that there is. I mean, he has to be in the top five. I don't think that there's a legitimate conversation about screenwriters of all time that doesn't include Aaron Sorkin in the top five, particularly if you're talking about television. I think some of his movie work has been a little softer, but also the highs are inarguably high. I mean, you have to talk about him. You have to talk about William Goldman. Yes. You have to talk about Nora Ephron, obviously. Of course. You have to probably talk about Woody Allen, even though he is a miasmatic swamp of a man. Yeah, that's a point, though. I don't think you get to Aaron Sorkin without without Woody Woody Allen. You don't. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Sorkin has left an indelible footprint. He has been an incredible influence. And, you know, it's funny to think about him today as in the wake of the Golden Globes, there's just been a lot of discourse about Taylor Swift online. Oh, yeah. And the criticism of Taylor Swift that what she does is easy. Bullshit. If what she did was easy, then any one of the literally thousands of people who are seeking to imitate her would be successful, Mm -hmm. and none of them are, because what she does is basically impossible. And I say that as someone who does not consider myself like a Taylor Swift fan, Mm -hmm. but you cannot... And yet, we have two of her albums on vinyl. Yeah, and I'll play them from time to time, but Mm -hmm. I don't listen to Taylor Swift. You're not a Swiftie. I wouldn't consider myself so, but I have an impossible appreciation for her talent and her hard work and her dedication. Incredible work She does the things she does better than anyone. Absolutely. And that is what you can say about Sorkin. We've Mm. had an entire generation now of screenwriters coming up trying to mimic Sorkin and not one of them has been able to do it. Yes. His voice is... So distinctive, so clear that you would think it would be easy to imitate. You would think it would be easy to replicate. But there is a genius there. There is an inarguable genius there that survives a lot of very legitimate criticism about his storytelling instincts, about his treatment of women. Terrible women. His terrible (laughs) women. His absolute rank conservatism, right? Like the fact that he is so old-fashioned. For a guy who was born in the early 1960s, he is so old-fashioned about his understanding of the world. Mm. He writes from such a place of enfranchisement and privilege. Yes, that's a nice way to put it. This is a man who absolutely believes in the system. He believes that Mm. the system will work and that great men will do great things and the world will be healed by their genius. And obviously sees himself as a part of sure, that great sure. man, great genius yeah, kind I'm of sure lineage. I'm sure he's a big Ayn Rand fan. <laughs> well, no, I mean, he is he is a Democrat. He is like well, a, a card-carrying yes, Democrat. Yes. He is, his politics are liberal. It's something other than that. It's something underlying that. It is like a real metaphysics. He just believes in, yeah, the ability of of the great man to mm. to form the world, to change the world, to be challenged and to rise to meet that challenge. That is the story of 
everything that he has written. Yeah, yeah. Which is exciting and fun to watch. Like, I always get that heart swell when that moment happens. And I don't necessarily completely disagree with his argument about excellence, right? That is the point on the Venn diagram, this very complicated Venn diagram, where Ayn Rand and Aaron Sorkin and Brad Bird and I all kind of cross over in the middle is a belief that there is such a thing as excellence, Right. right? And that there is in a sense, a calling to put that excellence to use in the service of your community, in the service right. of your society. And I think maybe, yeah, maybe Sorkin's a little more Rand mm. and Brad Bird and I are maybe a little more on the other side of that <laughs> line. I don't know. But I do believe that that is true. I differ pretty firmly on his, yeah, on his trust in the system, on his trust in, right. in America, a flag-waving kind of America. <laughs> but, you know, we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about that at the end of today's episode. What's your history with Sorkin? How did you get to know those rhythms and ticks of his dialogue? Uh, That is a great question. You introduced me to the West Wing. Surely I must have seen something of Sorkin's before that, though. I think I saw Moneyball first, which is weird. That is weird. I know. Because for modern Sorkin, that is the least Sorkin-y. And yes, uh, yeah, it's strange to think that. I don't know why I would have watched that film either, except that I am a big Brad Pitt fan. I think that he's terrific. And it was a huge hit. I mean, that's his follow-up to The Social Network, which is, as I've said before, one of my favorite films of all time. And now I've seen that one with you. And I think that I had seen The Social Network also, but it didn't do it for me at the time, which makes sense because that was released when? 2000, what is that, like seven 2010 for The Social Network. 2011 for Moneyball. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, for, for whatever reason, Moneyball, I guess because it was... About baseball. I'm not a baseball fan, <laughs> but I do like sports movies. Sure. And the tech bro-ness of Social Network left me cold. I just don't understand anything about it and didn't care very much. And God, that character. <laughs> there's there's no argument I mean, that Brad Pitt isn't more charming right? than Jesse Eisenberg. Right? Yeah. So I think yeah. I just enjoyed Moneyball and was like, oh yeah, I'll watch this. And I think that I had actually watched The Social Network because I had read a Vanity Fair article about David Fincher. Yeah. And he was talking about Rooney Mara, who I think I just said her name right for the first time in living history. It is I always transposed. A common it. trope in our relationship <laughs> that you refer to her pretty consistently as Mara Rooney. I'm so sorry. <laughs> So, yeah, Fincher was talking about, like, how, you know, Rooney Mara was his new muse or whatever and how fucking terrific she was in uh, Social Network. So I watched it looking for that and was like, okay, sure. I mean, it's a great scene, but it's so short, I suppose. It's, I mean, it's almost five minutes. It's longer than you think. And it it is so incredibly complex and deft. And she executes that Sorkin dialogue. She does. At least as well as anyone else in that film. And that that film sets a high bar, you know? I would agree. It's interesting now that we think of Sorkin so much as as a movie guy, right? right? Because so much of his career is television. So much of his sensibility, his aesthetic is television because he starts out as a theater guy. And there's just more commonality between theater and television there sure is. than yeah. there is between theater and, and a movie production set. He's only written seven movies that he himself has not directed. He wrote A Few Good Men, obviously. He wrote Malice. He wrote The American President that would then be stripped uh-huh. for parts for The West mm-hmm. Wing. He writes Charlie Wilson's War. He writes The Social Network, Moneyball, mm-hmm. and then Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle uh, yes. Steve Jobs, which is an interesting film. The script is ambitious enough and has enough 
clarity of vision that I think that is what gets Sorkin into the director's chair for his next three projects for Molly's Game and The Trial of the Chicago 7 and Being the Ricardos. I haven't seen a, any of those. Have you? I haven't. Being the Ricardos was a huge disaster. I tried oh. to watch Molly's Game and couldn't get through it. The you... Trial of the Chicago 7 is on my list, particularly because we were just talking about uh, Born on the Fourth of July, which features, you know, Abby Hoffman. And I want to like get into some of that yeah. political aspect. But yeah, no, I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. For me, though, it was always his TV. You know? Right. He starts in movies. He has those first few. He gets Sports Night in 1998, which I just adored. Mm. Crazy now to hear Sorkin dialogue with a laugh track. A laugh track. <laughs> painful, painful. I'm sure he hated that. I can't to. imagine. But a lot of what makes Sorkin Sorkin is right there in the first episode of Sports Night. Not mm. least of all, a large chunk of his ensemble, right? There are a lot of recurring actors that yeah. he likes to work with. He has this repertory company that he goes around with. And a lot of them are right there in Sports Night. But you're right. It's the West Wing. It's the West Wing in mm. 1999 that is just a titanic televisual accomplishment. Mm. Just an impossible thing. It is wild to imagine that that exists. If you want a glimpse of pre-9-11 America, if you want a mm. glimpse of the end of history, right? This, this this millennial sense that we have solved all the problems and idealism has won the day, go look at the West Wing. It is a staggering accomplishment. Yeah. And then, of course, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, mm -hmm. which I love and is terrible. And then the <laughs> newsroom, which I love and is terrible. And that's it. He hasn't really produced yeah. that much. And, of course, we can't give him full credit for the West Wing either. Because the other thing about Aaron Sorkin is quite the drug habit. Yeah, quite that's right. the cocaine habit. That's right. Which I think, I mean, obviously, this is... The double tragedy of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip is him writing Matt Albee, the lead character played by Matthew, Matthew Perry, yeah. as a version of himself, right? He loves, Sorkin loves writing himself into really all of his scripts. All of his protagonists are a version of him. Mm. You can see a real commonality from Daniel Caffey here to Sam Seaborn in The West Wing. We can just track this kind of guy who is kind of likable, but also kind of an asshole, but also the smartest person in the room all the time, just yeah. the smartest person. He's kind of rebellious. Maybe he doesn't have the sufficient respect for authority, but that's okay because he's right. Yes, but I also has daddy issues and needs like a paternal figure to tell him that he's doing well. And all of that makes Tom Cruise the perfect vessel <laughs> for Sorkin dialogue. Yeah. I had my socks knocked clean off, clean across the room. <laughs> watching Cruise, right? You knock my <laughs> socks off. <laughs> watching Cruise handle the dialogue in this film, like watching carefully. I think he's brilliant. I think, I think it's unbelievable that he didn't work with Sorkin again, except that he's just too big. He's just too famous, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Cruise's performance in this film? Oh, I think he's just so dynamic. I think he's wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I love that this is a nice combination. We were just talking last week about how he's getting into his body, watching him do like the boxing scenes in Far and Away. Yeah. And it was great to see him being both in his body like and in his mind at the same time, like as this dialogue is lighting up and he's hitting softballs and, yeah. you know, I, I found all of that really interesting and just fun to watch. When we give him something physical to do, when he's hitting softballs, when yeah. he's eating, which he does he more does in this film eating. than maybe all other films put together. Yeah, I'm that's a sure. Sorkin thing too, though, right? Having your characters walk around eating? Having your characters have a physical thing that they interact with. Yes, in sometimes general, yeah, it's eating. Sometimes but the it's, tennis ball. Yeah, you can think yeah. of yeah, Toby's tennis ball from the West Wing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, it's just a gimmick. It's something that they can do while they're 
yeah, brains and mouths are struggling to contend with this dialogue. <laughs> while Tom Cruise, while Daniel Caffey has something to do with his hands, I think he looks great. Absolutely dynamic. When he doesn't, his gestures, his physicality, I think they become a little stagey. I think they become That's a little fair. big and a little theatrical. It's so hard to watch this movie and not be aware that it's a play. Yes, like all the way through. Yeah, because it is either just a play mm-hmm. or it is trying so hard to not be a play <laughs> that it's conspicuous. Yes. <laughs> Overall, though, I think this film really works. And I, I do can't too. wait to get into it and yeah. talk all about it. But before we do that. That's right, darling. Can't oh, get out of no. it. It's your week. It's the trailer game. I better hear a Jack Nicholson impression. <laughs> The good news is that if I do a Jack Nicholson impression, it will be better than Tom Cruise's Jack Nicholson impression. <laughs> yeah, I found it charming. <laughs> <laughs> that is unscripted. Oh, really? Yeah, he wasn't supposed. He was supposed to quote the line, but he wasn't supposed to do the impression. So it was a surprise to everyone. That is why Demi Moore smiles at that point in the film. That's the only time in the movie that she smiles, that's and it's like, because she's genuinely amused by this yeah, by this kind of <laughs> hacky theater kid impression that's going on. It's pretty good. It's good. I like it. Okay, here we go. Mm. When a young marine private is found dead in Guantanamo Bay, only one thing can bring justice to the world. Rhetoric. Rhetoric and oratory. Rhetoric, oratory, and repetition. You like repetition? I can give you repetition. You want a little thing called cadence? I can give you a little thing called cadence and repetition and rhetoric and oratory. We can do all of those things and we can bring them all together in the pursuit of justice. We can embody these things, this force of nature, in the frail little frame of Tom Cruise. Daniel Caffey is going to save the world and he's going to save the world by making a speech. Ladies and gentlemen, a few good men. Very happy. <laughs> it really is that rhythm, though, right? There really is like. Oh, absolutely. Ah. There's really nothing like it. I wanted to. It's one of the things that I appreciate about Amy Sherman Palladino is she also has like a rhythm and a cadence and a repetition that works. Yeah. But her stuff just never compels me long enough. And she writes terrible men. That's so interesting. It's just a different music, I think, from Amy Sherman Palladino. I think mm. that Shonda Rhimes also has a rhythm and a music Ooh, that's God, all Rhimes. her own. Yeah. I mean, we talked recently about, you know, the repetition of seriously becoming oh. a mm-hmm. thing in Grey's Anatomy in a way that now feels impossible. Like you could not etymologically track that back to Grey's Anatomy because it has <laughs> permeated the culture so fully. Sorkin's music, Sorkin's rhythm, Sorkin's cadence, I think, is never going to meet the public where the public is in a way that it will feel natural, in a way that it will be absorbed in the way that both Shonda Rhimes and I think, yeah, Amy Sherman Palladino to a certain extent Mm. have have infiltrated the culture. Sure. And that's okay because I'm happy, you know, (laughs) to quote the West Wing, let Sorkin be Sorkin. (laughs) (laughs) So this story begins with Sorkin, of course, not Aaron Sorkin, though, but rather his older sister, Deborah who, after graduating from BU with a law degree, signed up for a three-year tour with the U.S. Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps. During that tour, she is sent to Guantanamo Bay in Cuba to defend Marines who are accused of nearly killing a fellow Marine during a hazing, which had been ordered by their superior officer. Right before she leaves, she calls her brother Aaron and tells him all about it. Wow. He, at this point is in his late 20s. He's born in Manhattan. He graduates from Syracuse University with a BFA in musical theater, which (laughs) just makes all the kind of sense in the world. He spends his 20s working and hustling in New York City, trying to make it as an actor. His first play is staged in 1984 at Syracuse. His second play, Hidden in This Picture, debuts off-off-Broadway in 1988. 
At the point where he receives the phone call from his sister, he's working as a bartender at the Palace Theatre on Broadway. And, taken with the idea of the story, he begins sketching notes and dialogue on napkins during work hours, then transcribing them onto his computer, an early Macintosh, Mm -hmm. when he gets home. Through his theatrical agent, he sells the rights to the film option for this new script before it has ever been produced, which is outstanding. Yeah. And he manages to negotiate the production of an off-Broadway staged version of the script before the movie is produced. This is after he has offered a deal well into the six figures, as the quote goes, right? The producer, David Brown, had previously produced The Sting and The Sugarland Express and Jaws and Driving Miss Daisy and most recently Robert Altman's The Player. He agrees to Sorkin's terms. He believes not just in this script, not just in this story, but in this fresh new talent. Thus, the stage version of A Few Good Men debuts at the Heritage Repertory Theatre at the University of Virginia's Department of Drama on September the 19th, 1989, before transferring to the Kennedy Center in D.C. and then to the Music Box in New York City. Hmm. Included in the cast are such Sorkin repertory luminaries as Clark Gregg, Timothy <gasps> Busfield, and Bradley Whitford, all of whom at various points play the Kevin Bacon role. <laughs> That's <laughs> he wonderful. just has great actors coming in to play those roles. Also, Joshua Molina, who appears for a second in this film, yes. plays that same tiny little role on stage, which is wild. That's he would darling. much later, of course, become a dominant force in Sorkin's oeuvre. <laughs> the play has been staged and revived many, many, many times, and I won't go through the entire list, but I will call out one production that I bet you're sorry that you missed. In 2007, A Few Good Men was produced in Fort Worth in Texas with Lou Diamond Phillips playing Jessup, and wow. in the role of Lieutenant Caffey, Jensen Ackles. Shut up. How good is that? Oh my God, I cannot imagine that. How good though? That is good. I really do think that Jensen Ackles just has such charm and charisma on camera. It's hard to imagine him with that language though. I would love to see it. I would, I would love, love to, to hear also. it. Yeah, I I've wonder... never heard him try to do anything with that kind of complex oratorical rhythm. No. Interesting. Right? Uh-huh. I bet he could do it. I bet he could. <laughs> oh, big crush. He is the main reason at this point that... that my my resolve against watching The Boys, the yeah. cynical superhero reimagining on Amazon, I, I read a little bit of the comic when it first started coming out and decided, no, 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 this is not for me. Mm-hmm. This is not what I want for my superhero fiction. Thank you very much. But that cast is amazing. It really is. Yeah, so, it's got a lot of people that we really like. Aya Cash. Aya Cash. Who we, we adore. Beloved yes. of this parish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David Brown takes the script for A Few Good Men to Castle Rock, which had been founded only a few years before, but had already made a name for itself with When Harry Met Sally, directed by Rob Reiner and written by Nora Ephron, and Misery, directed by Rob Reiner and written by William Goldman. So that's two out of my all-time top five screenwriters right there, and now we're adding Sorkin to the mix as well. Reiner was immediately interested in directing A Few Good Men, and the deal was made. Columbia put up the money and handled distribution, paying Castle Rock a production fee which limits Castle Rock's, you know, financial liability on a film that was kind of a risk. Reiner wasn't convinced that the script was ready to film. It was theatrical. It was stagey. And he spent eight months working with Sorkin to revise it. And eventually, fearing that it would never be ready, Castle Rock sends it out to William Goldman for a full revision. When Sorkin receives his revision, he is so pleased with the changes that he backports them into the stage show, too. <laughs> Originally, quite lovely, actually. the logbook from the airport is supposed to be the smoking gun. He is supposed to have in his hands 
evidence at the end of the film or at the end of the play mm-hmm. that absolutely proves that Jessup is lying. He does not have to force Jessup into this confession. Mm. It's much stronger this much. way. Yeah. Goldman's instincts and skill, of course, legendary. Tom Cruise signs on in March of 1991. Demi Moore is so eager to play Galloway that she apparently waits in line all day to audition while she is eight months pregnant. Wow. James Woods wanted to play the Jessup role so badly that apparently he alienated a number of different casting directors. (laughs) But Reiner wanted Nicholson, who was paid $5 million for 10 days work. Whoa. Nicholson is quoted as saying, this is money at least well spent. (laughs) Wow, ballsy. It's true. It's an iconic performance, though. It is iconic. I didn't say great. I said iconic. I think... That final monologue is terrific. The final Maybe monologue the rest of is, it is a bit silly. Yeah, I find him surprisingly affected and just not at all convincing. He seems very uncomfortable with the monologue that he gets in his first scene, the monologue that he delivers. I should hope so. That's a gross monologue. It, it is, but he seems uncomfortable with just I like the rhythm mean. of the language. Yeah, the he's much better in dialogue. He's he's yeah. better playing off the other actors. But yeah, the, the theatricality of that monologue, I think does not suit him. Hmm. And ultimately, you're right. Though it is iconic, I I think that you could probably find a better performance. I don't think that he has captured it in the same way that I think Cruz is Caffey. I'm not sure that you could ever see a better version of that character Hmm. than Cruz. And I'm thinking about those other Sorkin staples, right? I'm thinking of Rob Lowe, right? Could Rob Lowe have come in and done this in 1992? Again, Almost exactly the same age as Cruz. Almost exactly that same kind of energy. Will play this exact part in the West Wing seven years after this. Could he do it? I'm not sure that he could do it as well as Cruz. Mm. I mean, okay, newsflash, controversial opinion. Rob Lowe may be not quite as good an actor as Tom Cruise, (laughs) but but it does feel as though Cruz is really bringing something to it, right? I think so. What do you think of Demi Moore, who I should note was paid $2 million for this role? Good for her. Got a payday, at least. Yeah. Obviously, nothing compared to Cruz's $12.5 million. Sure. But wow, $12.5 and a half. $12.5 million. Yeah, Hot. a career high at this point. Yeah, gosh. God, I just cannot imagine that kind of money. That's um, almost $25 million for the movies that he releases in 1992. Wow. <laughs> God. Blows my mind. Uh, Demi Moore. I am never just like thrilled with Demi Moore, but I always think that she's perfectly adequate and competent and lovely. And I think she is those things in this film. Yeah, she's a tough one. I I don't think I've ever really liked her. Well, maybe St. Elmo's Fire, right? Maybe like certainly the first time I ever Uh saw her. Okay, There's a fragility to her in that film that I like that I just don't get from her after the fact. And then she's so high profile through the 90s. And I think Mm -hmm. that almost all of those performances are extremely bad. They're all just kind of the same as I guess I feel. Yeah. She just brings Demi Moore into whatever she does. And Demi Moore is kind of like, I don't know. uh, You're right. But I'm not sure that that's the intent because I think that she's taking swings, right? I think that she takes Disclosure and The Scarlet Letter and Striptease. I think those are all intended to be very different films. I think those are all intended to be very different characters. Mm -hmm. But instead, you're right. We just get this this standard Demi Moore performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't know what to make of her. I like her very much in this film. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Like, I don't, I don't have anything bad to say about Demi Moore. I just don't think I have anything that's really raving to say either. It's funny, given our love of the Sways, that we have not talked about Ghost. 
What do you think of her in Ghost? I love Ghost, but I also haven't seen it in like 20 years. So (laughs) it's hard to say. I feel like she gave something lovely there. I always remember that her face upturned and the tears falling down and there's something really lovely there. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the like hard ass Demi Moore that doesn't work for me very much. I I feel like I see that more often. I wonder if there's a desire after her 80s, after Ghost, which mm-hmm. is 1990, if there's a desire there to push back against that and to, yeah, be more assertive, to mm-hmm. be more, you know, masculine in that 90s girl yeah, power kind of yeah. way. Yeah, like I yeah. saw her in G.I. Jane in theaters. That was the first R-rated movie that I think I saw in theaters, in fact. So, and I don't, I was too young to really make a value judgment on it. It was certainly that kind of role that was like leaning away from any kind of feminine fragility. We should talk a little bit about Nicholson, too. He's writing a weird career high here in the early 1990s, largely coming off of the Tim Burton Batman in 89. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about Nicholson in 1992? And I suppose, how do you feel about Nicholson now? I I mean, I don't, I think I've said this before on this podcast, in fact, that I don't understand the thing where everyone finds Jack Nicholson attractive or believes that people do, because I do not and have not ever. Interesting. And I find the argument that all women think that he is sexy to be a weird one. Like, I just don't well, quite... It's an argument that comes from a couple of very specific perspectives, most notably perhaps Nancy Myers in Something's yeah. Gotta Give. Yeah. Where she articulates this perspective that Jack Nicholson in all of his roguish, schlubby, you know, by that point, really quite old glory yeah. is the ultimate... Like, Diane Keaton turns down Keanu Reeves for Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Ignores Keanu Reeves to pine after Jack Nicholson <laughs> so in weird. that film. And it is clearly because Nancy Myers recognizes that there is something in Nicholson that is yeah. captivating. And I've certainly heard that, that if you meet him in real life, he feels it must be true. like, you know, an electric current is running through him at all times, which I can understand. He has, mm-hmm. of course, largely retired now, though. There's always that hope that he'll come back and do one more. I like that period, that late 80s, early 90s period of Nicholson much more than I like his earlier work. We recently had cause in our private life to talk a little about Mm -hmm. The Shining, and I find myself surprisingly on Stephen King's side vis-a-vis The Shining. I think that Nicholson is the wrong bit of casting for Mm. that film because he comes in with this manic, frantic, broken energy, and Jack Torrance is a man who is supposed to succumb to the overlook, not start nine-tenths of the way to crazy. Right, yeah. And that's, yeah, that, that is kind of my response to Nicholson's career as a whole. Like, I think he's interesting in the witches of eastwick yeah i love witches of eastwick and then we get broadcast news we get batman as i mentioned a few good men kind of revitalizes his career still further in 1996 he's going to appear twice in mars attacks which is a lunatic film (laughs) and then i guess we get as good as it gets with hunt which is like maybe the first time that he's being rehabilitated as a sexually desirable not just sexually desirable right romantically romantically yes that's an interesting distinction there it is And as we said, he's maybe not the right fit for this film on the whole, but wow, does he deliver when he needs to deliver. Wow, does he make that work right at the end. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Pulls it off. Principal Photography begins on October 21st, 1991 in D.C. We're there for two weeks, mostly filming exteriors before moving to Southern California. The budget was between 33 and 40 million dollars. Which sounds like a lot. Until you consider those salaries that we just talked yeah, about. That's $19 million yeah. accounted for with our top three leads. Holy smokes. So, And then, you know, a number of fantastic character actors who I hope are also getting a payday mm-hmm. in this film. The movie opens on December 11th, 1992 against the fourth week of Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, mm-hmm. the third week of The Bodyguard, the fifth Ooh. week of Disney's Aladdin, and alongside one other new release. That week was also the release week 
of The Muppet Christmas Carol. (laughs) (laughs) All-time great movie. The movie makes $15 million in its first U.S. weekend and goes on to make almost $250 million worldwide, which makes it, today, the third most profitable movie in the history of Castle Rock. Okay. Behind The Green Mile, which cost twice as much to produce... And the Polar Express, oh. which cost more than five times as much to produce. I can't with the Polar Express. So That's a bad one. That's one of the all bad time. ones. Has there been a better director who has ever produced a worst film? I don't know. I mean, even our kids are like, ugh. <laughs> I just I mean, can't watch it. <laughs> you have to think about to go from Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And Romancing the Stone, right? Like yeah. Zemeckis's mid-80s run is absolutely undeniable to go through all of his weird misadventures in, in motion capture filmmaking. But The Polar Express is the absolute nadir. That film is unwatchable. It is <laughs> one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. I would watch the live-action Jim Carrey Grinch movie <gasps> before I watched The Polar Express. Wow, that's and a I real Sophie's Choice. That's quite terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Cruise is absolutely hailed by critics and the public alike for this performance. And he says that he is inspired in his characterization of Caffey by his friend and the chairman of the board of the Religious Technology Center, the global head of Scientology, David Miscavige. Mm. And buckle up because this is going to be a gear shift because we have to talk about Scientology. And I know that from the very beginning of this podcast, I've said, hey, I'm going to do a bonus episode about L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. And that'll be fun and it'll be interesting and it'll be entertaining. And guys... It would be none of those things. It's not. Because the truth is that while the story starts in a fun and whimsical and absurd place, it gets very bad and then stays very bad for a very, very long time. So I'm going to give you a pricey here, and then we can kind of be done with it. And I'll say as a disclaimer, too, that my intention here is not to be salacious. It is not to be judgmental. My intention is to move quickly through this very difficult-to-believe story. Scientology is founded by L. Ron Hubbard, a former pulp writer and college dropout who, suffering from dubious illnesses in order to get out of Navy duty during the Second World War, moves with his family into the mansion of Jack Parsons, rocket scientist and occult magician. I cannot go into all the details of Parsons' life here because he is also a crazy, crazy figure. But suffice it to say that between 1945 and 1946, Hubbard works with Parsons and others to pursue again, in real life, to pursue a sex magic ritual intended to summon, to literally birth, Babylon, the mother of abominations, the scarlet woman, the great mother, a goddess figure in the personal pantheon of notorious British occultist Alistair Crowley, who was a primary inspiration for Parsons. So these are people who, by day, are actual rocket scientists working at JPL, right? It is joked near the founding of JPL that it stands for the Jack Parsons Laboratory and not the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. (laughs) These are NASA people, in effect, who are also, in the evenings and at the weekends, having orgies and practicing sex magic, trying to summon this this dark goddess. Wow. I should note that the ritual failed. Mm. At this point, Hubbard marries his second wife, who is 13 years younger than he is and a former girlfriend of Jack Parsons. He also begins practicing a kind of self-hypnosis through a list of emphatic affirmations, many of which are oriented around his feelings of shame, his tendency to lie, his sexual insecurity. Parsons, Hubbard, and Northrup, the second wife, sink their entire savings into a plan to buy yachts on the East Coast, then sail them to the West Coast and sell them at a profit. 
Hubbard decides, in receipt of the yachts, that he would rather sail around the world with his new wife, effectively bankrupting Parsons. Yikes. By 1950, having begged the VA to increase his pension and having been arrested in San Luis Obispo for passing a fraudulent check, Hubbard begins to work on what he calls Dianetics, a pseudoscientific self-help book that would make ordinary people, by which I mean just men, this is very, very biased mm. towards man, into superior beings with increased IQs and photographic memories. It would heal all their minor ailments. It would prevent cancer. It would increase sexual potency. That book is, of course, immediately dismissed by the scientific establishment, but it gains a certain traction in post-war America. It is estimated that 500 groups are established across the country to promote the book's tenets. Mm. It was, quickly and quietly, the beginning of a cult, and Hubbard was finally enjoying the kind of money and popularity and power that he had always felt that he deserved. But by the late 1950s, Hubbard's private life is falling apart. He has taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from this dubious business, which is now falling apart under public scrutiny and some humiliating failed public stunts. He eventually kidnaps his one-year-old daughter and flees to Cuba, denouncing his second wife and her lover as communist sympathizers to the FBI. Sarah Northrup, the second wife, takes to the press, telling her story and denouncing Hubbard. But a year later, he agrees to return their daughter to her in exchange for Sarah signing a statement that he had written, in which she claims that she had been misrepresented and that Hubbard had always been, quote, a fine and brilliant man. Oh, God. Dianetics, by this point, is dead. It has faltered in his absence. Hubbard returns to the U.S. and empties what remains out of the bank account and immediately creates Scientology, a new science, quote, beyond Dianetics. It wasn't enough to promise that people would be healthy and happy. Now he's promising people that if they subscribe to his beliefs, if they pay enough money to ascend the orders of his organization, that they could someday become what he calls operating thetans, possessed of actual, in real life, superhuman powers. At this point, Hubbard marries his third wife, Mary Sue Whip. He is 39 years old. She is 20. In 1953, he establishes the first Church of Scientology. By 1954, it has been awarded tax-exempt status, though that won't last. By this time, Hubbard is living in England. He'll spend the rest of his life moving from place to place, often partially in hiding, almost always paranoid, writing wilder and wilder things about what Scientology is and what it means. He dies in 1986, apparently leaving behind instructions that Scientologist Pat Broker should take over from him, but Hubbard's right-hand man, David Miscavige, who was at the time only 26 years old, having joined the church at the age of 11, declared that this instruction from Hubbard had been forged and took control of the entire organization himself. Miscavige had already spent the better part of the decade pursuing aggressive expansion and intimidating the enemies of Scientology into silence. Now in charge, he goes to war against the IRS. He begins constructing new Scientology facilities, including the Flag Building in Clearwater, Florida, which is a 377,000-square-foot spiritual headquarters for the organization. Miscavige remains in charge of Scientology to this day, a leader to its 40,000 members and 7,500 direct employees, despite fierce opposition and legal entanglements. And here is the thing. Scientology is a goddamn nonsense. It is a lie, a con, a fiction created by a broken and insecure con man to excuse his own inadequacies, but mostly, always mostly, to make money. 
It is aggressive. It is bullying. It is ruthless in its dealings, proudly ruthless in its dealings with many, many enemies. It has hurt thousands, probably tens of thousands of people. David Miscavige has been publicly, legally accused of human trafficking, child abuse, slavery, harassment, intimidation, assault, and there is no way that he should not be in prison. His wife has not been seen in public since 2007, and her absence is an ongoing mystery. In 2016, his father publishes a scathing tell-all book about his own five decades within the Church of Scientology. It is disgusting. And there are certainly, yes, people involved, many people involved who are conscious of what Scientology really is and what it does. But then we come back to Cruz. And as I've said before, I have a problem blaming the victims of a cult. There is no doubt, obviously, that Cruz is heavily involved in Scientology. He's a poster boy for Scientology. And yes, that has had, at the very least, deleterious effects. That has validated this cult in the eyes of the world. But shame is a dangerous thing. And anyone who promises to take that away for the low, low price of $1,000 or $100,000 or $100 million... Or 10% of your income. Or 10% of your income... That person is the problem, not the person who believes in those lies. Cruz is not the first person to fall for this kind of con. Scientology isn't the first organization to perpetrate this kind of con. This is something that we have seen happen over and over again. This is just the most public and perhaps the most aggressive, which is not, of course, to exonerate Cruz from any actual wrongdoing. We are going to have to talk a little bit in the weeks to come about what happens to him really between the years 2000 and 2008, post-Kidman marriage, through the whole Katie Holmes of it all. But I have a hard time condemning Cruz for falling under the sway of this organization that has promised him, at the very least, belonging, that has promised him a sense of the family that he has never had growing up. And I hope that in our condemnation of Scientology, which, I'll emphasize, ought to be condemned, Yeah that we don't paint with too broad a brush, that we don't blame too easily or too freely the people who have fallen under its sway. Mm-hmm. And I've just taken a big political stand here right in the middle of our podcast, and I'm kind <laughs> of roping you into it with me. Is there anything you would no, like to say to clarify no, your opinion no, no. on this, your perspective? I myself spent a lot of time in a church setting that I now recognize as very cultish in the way that it promoted what was called community, I suppose, and belonging, um, and what really became a complete oppression of personhood. I don't know that, and I really don't think that the people who led the organization that I was in were doing it for their own selfish gain. I think that they believed it too. I think that people want to believe that they are a part of something. And people want to believe that what they do matters and counts for something. And I think that shame in particular has been weaponized against people. I mean, since the beginning, since organized religion was a thing. I think that's the thing that we're trying to get out of and away from. And yes, there's L. Ron Hubbard. And yes, there's Joel Osteen. But also there are people who are really trying to find hope and impart hope in other people. 
and I have nothing but forgiveness for them and for myself. And there's really no graceful dismount from this. No. Except to maybe, you know, segue from all of this to a story, a fiction about the abuses of power and what a person can do if he believes himself to be beyond the limit of law and morality, (laughs) I guess. No easy transition that can be found there, for sure. (laughs) This is the only thing that makes me wish that our podcast had commercials. (laughs) (laughs) Now for something completely different. (laughs) Casper mattresses. So now seems like the perfect time to get into the movie. We open on Guantanamo Bay, a place that has no controversial history at all. <laughs> it is weird that in 1992, almost no one would have heard of Guantanamo Bay. It's odd that we have to keep like explaining what, what it, it is. is. Yeah. Whereas now, of course, it's infamous. Mm-hmm. A young man is attacked and duct taped, and we cut out of there to the military pageantry of, frankly, the kind that we haven't seen since Taps. Since Taps. Here on the Very podcast. reminiscent of Taps. We get to the introduction of Joanne Galloway, who is rehearsing her speech as so she cute. crosses the corner. It is cute, yeah, right? This is, this is a charming opening, actually, for her. It's a very human moment, which I'm shining a light on because... Aaron Sorkin doesn't often give his female characters human moments. He doesn't like to give his female characters fallibility. Or if there is fallibility, it is usually in that kind of, oh, I'm the clumsy rom-com heroine kind of fallibility, Mm -hmm. right? Or I just just loved the wrong boy or something. Yeah, Yeah. it makes them more endearing. But here he is giving her a really nice set-up knockdown joke right at the beginning of of the script. And it is great. It lands so beautifully when she flubs the moment when she gets to it. She's done everything perfectly. And then she finally gets to that little part we saw her rehearse and just misses it, just biffs it. Yeah. And it's, it's really adorable. I'm always a fan of jo- because it's something that I do all the time in my real life. I'm always a fan of jokes that rest upon a character getting themselves into a, a semantic cul-de-sac, a grammatical cul-de-sac. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I always think of that Austin Powers joke, allow myself to introduce myself. <laughs> Yep, it's good. It turns out that two Marines, Dawson and Downey, have been accused of killing Private Santiago. They are respected officers, while the victim was a screw-up. This sounds like something called a Code Red. All the way through this film, we're going to talk about Code Reds. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to correct it to, surely Code's Red, right? (laughs) Is Code Reds not an improper pluralization? That's a good question. I think everybody, and that's how we always do it. Yeah, you're right. Code Reds, Code Blues. We do get a lot of, of color-coded codes in fiction, right? Or maybe it's just between this and Grey's Anatomy. We get, <laughs> yeah. we get code blues in codes blue in Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> yes. I think, of course, of, of red alerts. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh-huh. You know, are there any other color-coded codes that we should think of in fiction? I mean, the, the infamous code black from Grey's Anatomy as Ooh. well. Bomb in a body. Can't have that. Yeah. <laughs> do we need a code for it? I guess we do. <laughs> it's happened twice, and that's surprising. <laughs> Galloway, though, it turns out, is not the man for the job. We need someone, you know, cruisier. Someone who's a man, we obviously. Should. Well, except I love the pivot that we get. And and I don't believe that this is Aaron Sorkin. I would put money on this being William Goldman. Mm. The revelation halfway through that Caffey has not been hired because he is the genius upstart lawyer. Right. But because everyone knows that he's kind of a lazy bum who will sell out and settle yes. at the first opportunity. That's fantastic. We are not going to do that with Sorkin protagonists going forward. Yeah. They will be tragic. They will be tortured. But they will not be simply misled like yeah. that. Hmm. Particularly when we're talking about their own capability and excellence. 
So, yeah, this is when we meet Gaffy out playing baseball, and he's... Playing hit- softball, softball, actually, which I find really charming. I don't know why. I think it's softball. so darling that they're all playing softball instead of baseball. It is very like, you know, when I was bartending in Wisconsin, we were on a softball team. No one plays baseball. That's kind of hard. But sure. softball is like the more chill, relaxed version. In this setting, I want to say, again... Oh, you sooner softball forced to be fucking reckoned with. Just <laughs> to saying. echo back to last week's show. Just, just in case you're picking up here with us. <laughs> last week we talked a little about OU softball. <laughs> by which I mean we said that it was good. It is good. <laughs> <laughs> so Cruz, I think, is immediately impressive, right? He's mm-hmm. got all that physicality going on. He's handling the Sorkin dialogue. He's got the charm. He's got the what what is that quality? What is that like disrespectful, rebellious quality? What is yeah. that? I am smarter than you, but I'm saying it in a charming way. What, 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 how do we label that? Because it's not quite the Han Solo thing, because that's no. just more much grumpy, more right? That's grumpy. much more Harrison yeah. Ford. Mm-hmm. But this, it seems to me, is a very 1990s kind of heroic archetype for our protagonist. You know, We're going to see this guy a lot through the 90s. We're going to see Tom Cruise play this guy again yeah. when we get to the firm, at least as I recall. I'm having a lot of trouble coming up with an adjective. I'm okay. sorry. All of them sound too mean. They're not really that, like... It's funny. If it was a female, we'd call it spunk, I think. Ooh, that's good, actually. It's a little spunky, right? Yeah, little, no, there, like, there is something. Yeah. yeah. that That's interesting. That is always so gendered. But yeah, yeah. I think you've, you've kind of put your finger on it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's a paper to be written. There's a paper to be written. I sense it in the water and in the wind. We cut out to Cuba and we get voiceover from Santiago asking for help getting out of Guantanamo Bay and offering information about the fence shooting incident. And we present a lot of information here in a way that is slightly out of order. And it does feel as though maybe the movie is trying very hard to be a movie. And it's mm. trying very hard to break up what would be a more, what would necessarily be a more ordered presentation of exposition to the theater going audience. Because do you feel that we just jump around a lot here? We're out in Cuba, then we're in DC, then we're at the uh, at the softball field, softball pitch, softball court. Field, softball, yeah. yeah okay. Softball field, you had it. <laughs> the Quidditch arena. <laughs> and then we're back out to Cuba, and then we're in with Jessup as he is talking with uh, Markinson, played by J.T. Walsh, and of course Kendrick, played by Kiefer Sutherland, yeah. giving the most Southern. <laughs> he sure is. It's a little bit silly. It's so it's not even that noticeable here, but by Later. God, when he's on the stand, yeah. it's like he's competing with Daniel Craig <laughs> with and, and, and you know, the colonel from KFC over sure. who can be the least authentically southern. It's it's a wild choice. It's weird. Yeah. These characters are not based on real people. Let's be clear about that. And, and in fact, this production had to be legally clear about that at more than one point in the mm, process. I'm sure. What what do we make of Kiefer Sutherland's accent? Let's do that first, I guess. I don't think that Keith or Sutherland is good. Kiefer Sutherland? Kiefer, I can never get his yes. name. See, whatever. Yeah. You don't think that Keith or Sutherland? <laughs> Either one. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> you don't like Kiefer Sutherland at all? You don't like him not, in no. his Brat Pack era? You don't like him as Jack Bauer saving Lost the world Boys. from terrorism? The Jack Bauer Power Hour? You haven't seen Lost Boys? You? No. Oh, we might have to put Lost Boys on the list. I was never like a vampire or... So he's never worked for you? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I couldn't really tell you exactly why. I like Donald Sutherland a lot. Sure. I think that of the Brat Pack actors, he is and always was the most boring and the most conventional. And I think that that's probably the key to his ongoing success Hmm. is that he's just a slab of meat that you can put in front of a camera (laughs) and he can say the words that he needs to say. I don't know that he's ever been... 
more engaging than that. But I, I love this. I love this version of Kiefer Sutherland who is swinging so hard for the fences <laughs> and giving so much. It's bananas. The, the severity of the stares that he wields when he is on the stand. Sure. Man, it's a lot of acting. That's a <laughs> lot is. going on right there. What do you think of J.T. Walsh as Markinson? Too, I like him a lot. Him. Yeah. It's a lovely nuanced performance. It really is. Yeah, this is a great character. It's, again, a character that we're going to see as a recurring motif in Sorkin's work, particularly when we get to the West Wing. We're going to see the noble man who has done bad things as part of a corrupt system and kind of is struggling with yes. that and doesn't seek apology or expiation of that. It kind of understands his place right? and understands that there's nothing to be done to restore it. It's, it's yeah, I think a lovely performance. Mm -hmm. And tragic. Yeah. I love when he disappears from the plot for an hour and everyone's so talking about him like he's James Bond. <laughs> oh, no. That guy, he's gone. If he's You'll gone, never he never existed. He could be that table. You don't know. Are you Markinson? That you who I'm you pulled Markinson. up. That's actually a great, Well, that's two people. <laughs> that's a good, good exchange. So as I said, this is the sequence. This is the first of Nicholson's four scenes in the film. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is his least successful because of that big monologue right in the middle mm. where he just can't seem to get his mouth around the theatricality of the language. Yeah, I didn't notice it as much as you did. I think I was trying too hard to make sure I didn't lose any of the plot threads because I just wanted to make sure I knew exactly what was going on yeah. and what we were trying to cover up because they show you right from the beginning, which I really like. There's no sleight of hand and there's no... An then we reveal that it was Nicholson the whole time. Like, we know from the beginning that Jessup orders yeah. this. And, and, like, we see everything that happens, which I appreciate. But yeah. I wanted to just make sure I was following all of those threads in the beginning. So this I don't think I noticed. structured like a Columbo episode. Yeah. This is, this is a how-done-it, <laughs> not a who-done-it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is interesting that it, it approaches its plot with a great deal of, of confidence, and seems to communicate a desire to be ambitious. It seems to be wanting to communicate something that's a bit more labyrinth and that's a bit more cloak and dagger. But yeah, you're right. The plot at the end of the movie is completely transparent. It right. is completely what we thought it was the whole time. The one wrinkle, I suppose, which is only really introduced as a speed bump, is that Downey didn't get the order directly from Kendrick. Right. But like, in effect, he did. And also, and, that's called a chain of command. <laughs> yes, it's true. But also uh, that Santiago had a coronary problem the whole time. That is true, yeah, yes. That, yes. that was, I guess, a bit of a reveal. I guess so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Galloway goes to talk with Caffey to tell him that Dawson and Downey have been locked up. The names in this movie, I cannot get them to stick in my head. <laughs> Dawson and Downey. Dawson and Downey. And Jessup. Are the Marines, And yeah. I now cannot remember the name of the character that J.T. Walsh plays. I just said it Markinson. a moment ago. Markinson. Markinson. Okay. You've got it. And Caffey, of course, which is an insane name that no one has. Yeah, that's a weird one. It doesn't... Why? I... <laughs> You know, you and I really love to create names for our characters. And Kathy, to me, just feels so insubstantial. It's a strange name for your protagonist, for me. I do like Especially way... someone who's Daniel Alistair is a great start. Right. And then you get to Kathy. And I just don't quite, well, I, I don't love it. I even love the way that we play with Daniel through the course of, of the movie. Characters calling him Dan, characters calling him Danny, Danny especially when yeah. Jessup is calling him Danny, is mm -hmm. extremely good. Like, that's there's a real narrative functionality to Agreed. that name. But these surnames, yeah, they do feel a little a little artful. Maybe like we're trying a little too hard to make them unusual. We're trying a little too hard to make them distinctive. Perhaps. But Dawson and Downey is particularly unforgivable. <laughs> I'm yeah. not completely sure right now that I could... James Marshall is Downey. Is Downey, yeah. Yes, okay, yeah. all right. Dawson's well, the big guy. 
Because Dawson would kick my butt, sir. Yes, Dawson is the brilliantly named, in real life, brilliantly named Wolfgang Bodison. What? That is <laughs> his awesome. real name. That guy, <laughs> not an actor. You know, and it, it kind of shows. shows. It kind of shows. charming. He's charming and lovely. And a good he looking a beautiful fella. face. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very expressive eyes. But he was actually, yeah, on the crew. He had come up as a PA and was, was working production for wow. this film. <laughs> but Reiner That's was magic. having trouble casting that mm-hmm. role. And despite the fact that Cuba Gooding Jr. was apparently on set at least once. And did a great job. Does a fantastic job. Yeah. 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 Wolfgang Bodison is uh, kicked up to the big leagues. Okay. Well, good for him. And he's going to go on to do another dozen movies or so through the 90s into the 2000s. I guess none that are particularly distinctive, but... He acquits himself well enough here, although it's it's not perhaps the quality or the depth of performance that we want, particularly when he's standing next to James Hurley. <laughs> Obviously, we can't go more than a week here on The Last Star in Hollywood, or indeed in any podcast that I do. I just talked about Twin Peaks this week on Stars and Swords, too. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it again. James Hurley, the worst thing about Twin Peaks. I'm so sorry. James Marshall, the worst actor in Twin Peaks. And I'm sure that he's a lovely man. I'm sure that he's a great guy. But that character stinks and the performance is flat. And then I turned this film on and I had forgotten completely that mm. he was in it. And we get an even worse, even flatter performance. See, I don't know. I think he works for me in this. Oh, he's such a miss for me. Yeah. I mean, it's bad writing. Like, don't just do this simple farm boy, this inarticulate farm boy it's story. True. It's, it's just true. That is bad writing. Dull. Yeah. But yeah, the performance is doing nothing for me, unfortunately. Yeah. Particularly at the end when he's like, what's that mean, Dawson? What's that mean? It's like, that could not have been more clear. And in the end, it comes off as being like weirdly savior complex-y, right? Like like Kathy is so good that he can't just save the black guy. He also has to save the idiot. His his intellect mm. is so fierce that he can, you know, which is where we're talking about that, like the exceptional man, right? This, yeah. is, this is where we get into the Randy and stuff. This is where we get toward, you know, Brad Bird's take on, on that kind of objectivist excellence, right? That That the exceptional man can save everyone. He can save a black guy and an idiot and a woman. It's fantastic. Ugh. And it all gets, a, yeah, it gets gross, <laughs> gross, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I that if, if Downey had been smart, even if he'd just been of average intelligence. Yeah, if he'd been Noah Weil. Switch I Noah Wilde. Noah Wilde. Is he the best and most charming performance in the film? I think perhaps, yes. He's, yeah. so, this is two years before ER. Just too. terrific. He is fantastic. Magnetic, yeah. Two scenes, absolutely knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. So cute when he's smiling, when he's being tested on what is or is not in these various books. Yeah. So cute. I agree. He's great. What is he doing now? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. No, get in touch and let us know. <laughs> LastStarPod at gmail.com. <laughs> so we get this scene where Galloway goes to talk to Caffey and is, is reciting his biography chapter and verse. And then he reveals, of course, that he, despite his affect of, of not caring, has in fact read the entire file, has in fact memorized it and internalized it all and is, is ready for it. She baits him by mentioning this mysterious code red. And we cut to the prison and the first scene with Dawson and Downey. Code red, it turns out, is all about this system of cruel and ironic punishments for yeah. failing to live up to unit, core, god, and country. Ugh, there's a lot of bad, toxic machismo happening yeah, in definitely. this sequence. Yeah. What do you think, ultimately, of the film's depiction of the Marine Corps? It's really hard to say, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, surprisingly hard to say. Yeah. Uh, again, this is the, the part of Sorkin that has that kind of flag-wavy thing. And yeah. I, I really like Jessup's final monologue. Like, it's good, compelling stuff. 
But does it feel as though, because I think the reason that, that we like it is that it feels like the articulation of a real argument. Like, right, you well, don't want to think about this, but I have to do it, right? Yes. Does the movie believe that, do you think? I I think so, because they have Galloway say it, be- because she says it to Sam. Remember when he sa- she asked him first, why do you hate these guys? It's like, because they're bullies and they beat up the weaker kid. Right, which is a very classic Sorkin. Totally. It is not about the technicality. It is not about the letter of the law. It is about the principle, goddammit. And right. I'm going to state that, and then we'll take a deep breath and get back to the technicality. But I need to assert my moral compass sure, right sure, here, sure, sure. right? This is a this is a Josh Lyman. This is a, this is a, a Toby Ziegler kind of <laughs> monologue here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is very Toby Ziegler. You're right. Uh, then, then he asks her back, "Why do you like them so much?" And she says, "Because they stand on the wall and say, nothing's going to hurt you tonight, not while I'm here, or something like that." Yeah, I mean, you're right, and textually, I think you're completely right. I have a problem with reading that line as being completely representative of what the movie as a whole believes, because. Mm-hmm. This is a Sorkin woman, right? She's going to be well, smart. Well, and also a military woman, too. But yes. Yeah, although that's honestly largely incidental. Do you get a real yeah. sense of military discipline from her? Do you get a sense Not that really, she is no. a part of the system any more than Kathy is? No, but you do get the sense that they're both on the back foot in this system that they have neither bought into nor have been accepted by. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But But what crucially distinguishes the two is that he is on the outs because he's this young rebellious guy. He's got this attitude and she's on the outs because she's a girl. Yeah. And this, well, I get two from him only because again, Galloway says it, that he's just putting in the hours. What is it like? His three years or whatever. He's out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly, of course, what Sorkin's sister did in real life. So so even Mm -hmm. this is approached with a certain kind of sensitivity, not to suggest that Sorkin's sister, you know, phoned it in while she was serving, but that it's this three year tour of duty. And then you go on to, you know, quote unquote, your real life. I am suspicious of the Sorkin woman who deep down just wants to be taken care of. Yeah. Who deep down yeah. just wants to be protected. Who Gross. just she'll she'll be smart in the daytime and she'll put on her heels and she'll go to work. You know, we see this with Felicity Huffman and Sports yep. Night. We see this with every female character, wall to wall in the West Wing, with the possible exception of the fantastic stalker Channing uh-huh. as Abigail Bartlett, who is just so terrific and who pretty consistently pushes back against that through the whole show. But that's one in a field of, you know, right. twenty. Sorkin is deeply and profoundly a gender essentialist. Yes, he wants yeah. his men to be men and he wants his women to be women. And and I'm reading some of that into Galloway's support of this particular aspect of the system, right? Because she doesn't articulate, it's about code, it's about honor, it's about, right. you know, right. comradeship. She wants to be protected. Mm. And I don't know if the yeah, movie that's a point. That's a great point, cares enough about her to, to no. put the theme of the film in her mouth. You know no. what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. Darn. <laughs> well, but I mean, I, I raise this as a question. I raise this as as a point of confusion for me. I don't know ultimately what this film thinks about the Marine Corps specifically. Yeah. Right. It clearly has faith. It has this Sorkinian faith in the system. Right. He has mm-hmm. this conservative belief that if we all just behaved ourselves, if we all just behaved with the best of intentions, that the system fundamentally is good and just and works. That's why our two Marines are dishonorably discharged right. at the end of them, because they did the crime. They actually did it. Mm-hmm. But we get that pivot from Cruz that actually being in the Marines has nothing to do with whether or not you are a man of honor. You can be a man of honor who has been dishonorably discharged from the service. Right. That, is, that is a thing that, that Sorkin holds to be true. 
I don't know ultimately whether we are supposed to look at Jessup as a bad actor or whether we are supposed to believe this articulation of, of a kind of hawkish argument. And ultimately, this is the thing. Ultimately, I think that at this point in his career, he's maybe not confident enough in his liberal politics to sure. articulate it freely. Sure. But let's set that aside because something much more important is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon's going to show up in this movie. <laughs> is he good? <laughs> I like him, period, as a person, I think. And this role, the thing to me is that this role just isn't very much. It's not. Though weirdly, this is the Clark, Greg, Timothy Busfield, Bradley Whitford role. So right. you feel as though it should be a little more developed, perhaps. He doesn't yeah. seem to be giving a lot when we're in the courtroom, certainly. I like him when he's outside of the courtroom, and I like their last exchange very much. I kind of like how little he's giving in the courtroom, because where everybody else is kind of dancing for the jury, he's just here to do the job that he was assigned to do. Yeah. And where I like that about him. Caffey is dancing well, and Galloway is just being pretty poorly written, I think, through that yeah, sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is also the introduction, not just of Kevin Bacon, of, of Jack Ross, I guess, but... This is our first Sorkin walk and talk. The only make Whoa. it halfway down the corridor. Yeah, you're right. But it's our first one. Didn't even notice. And it's you're lovely. So right. It's yep. crazy how much it feels like a like a Thomas Schlammy West Wing, you know, retreating totally. shot. It's it's so good. <laughs> so Ross offers Caffey this 12-year deal. He's offering this very generous plea bargain right out of the gate which is a lovely bit of plot architecture there that mm-hmm. we'll return to in due course. But he's not interested, or at least he can be persuaded out of it by Galloway because she offers the olive branch to Caffey. They have all of this friction. They arrive in Cuba and we get Noah Weil, who is so lovely, uh-huh. driving them across the base to meet with Jessup, with Markinson and with Kendrick. They talk a little about Caffey's dad, another yeah. constant Aaron Sorkin touchstone that we'll mm-hmm. return to again and again. Then we'll head out to take the sights. We'll see the room. We'll interview the witnesses. What do you think of this sequence? This is this is kind of the most shoe leathery. We've got to go and yeah. see the sights. We've got to go and meet the people. Does this work for you? I think so. I uh, was wondering at the time about the shot of the closet. I was like, that's yeah. very specific. But yeah. we go back to it. So I'm like, okay, good. Because otherwise it was just like, we're spending a lot of time in here for a reason that I can't quite put my finger on except to see blood splatter. And I didn't need to see that. I understand that violence no, took place sure. here. Um, but of course they had to go to Guantanamo Bay and I'm glad that they did. That did help to, to make it feel like a movie and not so theatrical, not so stagey. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So I, I like all of that. I just find this conversation with Jessup so gross. This is when we're out at lunch. When we're out at lunch. Yeah. This is awful. Really, really awful and gross. Um, maybe unnecessarily so. Like, I think it would be more interesting to have him be more like a, um, who was the character in Taps? The, the the Colonel. The George C. Scott. The George C. Scott. Yeah. To have somebody who was more like that, who was just committed, I think might have been more interesting than to have someone that's just like a cigar chomping bastard. Yeah. I, I wonder about this scene. Obviously, Nicholson is a little more comfortable with the dialogue here. It's a little more Nicholsonian, honestly. <laughs> sure. Uh, but... We saw in the first scene that he is at least aware of the political realities of his position. Like, he's not stupid. He's not, you right. know, Marlon Brando off in the jungle yeah, leading yeah. his own little, little you know, insurrection. This is something that is much more integrated with the dynamics of the military as a whole. But here he's giving, yeah, it's so aggressive and so needlessly aggressive. Yeah. If he is comfortable enough in his power, 
that he believes that these people cannot touch him, then why is he provoking them like right. this? And if he's insecure in his power, if he doesn't think that he has covered up what has happened sufficiently well, then he should be nicer to them. <laughs> the provocation doesn't make sense yeah. either way. Yeah. And for him to double down, not just on the absolutely gross, you know, sexual language that he uses around Galloway. And for no one to, to even bat an eye at that table. Drop the outright, you know, homophobic slur. Oh, yeah. Even in 92, yep. you guys. Yep. It is it is dark. And we know that the movie understands that it is dark Naturally. because of the way that Cruz echoes it later. Mm -hmm. We understand that this is this is a real indication of something. And we're not even, I think, building like a personal enmity between the two. We're not really trying to make him such a villain that Caffey is now like dedicated to bringing him down by hook or by crook because sure. that, that it's not that kind of story. We really are preoccupied with justice here. I mean, yeah, it's well written and it's a compelling performance and it's a gorgeous set. This this excellent yeah, dining table right out there by the sand. You know, it's yeah. so good, but yeah, uh, difficult to process. Mm. This is the point in the story where Markinson disappears. I kind of wish that he had just disappeared in a cut while we're at lunch. Yeah. Just be cut back for a reverse angle and he's suddenly gone. Which is funny. Do you remember when they did that? <laughs> the scene we were just talking about, um, they had just visited the barracks where San they, were, they were in Santiago's room. Yeah. And Kendrick has the line, I think God wanted him dead or whatever the yeah. hell he said. <laughs> and then just disappears. And Sam says something like, well, what do you think about that? Oh, maybe that's what happened. They're like joking about it. Yeah. And the guy is just gone. It's <laughs> so weird. It's the most bizarre cut. And for all that there's a kind of mystery at the heart of this plot, good news, you guys, we've solved it. Because Galloway and Caffey both come to the conclusion that Jessup ordered the code red. Mm -hmm. Dawson and Downey confirm it. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a procedural from this point on. Yeah. You're absolutely right. This is framed like a like a Columbo episode because we're just pushing through <laughs> to figure you out. Said that. <laughs> well, you observed that that was true and I slapped yes. a label on it. Okay. I took credit for your genius because it is still a man's world. And this is an Aaron Sorkin film. Indeed. Even Jack Ross acknowledges that they are right by offering this ridiculously generous plea bargain now. He comes oh, back yeah. to the table offering them six months. You'll be home in six. We're going to sentence you for so, two years. Yeah. You'll be home in six months with a dishonorable discharge. But Dawson and Downey refuse to take that offer. Mm -hmm. Caffey wants out, but Galloway wants him to step up and argue the case. And I'm not sure that this portrayal of Caffey completely works for me. I think we would have needed to see him on the back foot more right at the beginning, that maybe he's not the best lawyer in his office. Maybe he's not the best at finding plea bargains. Maybe he's just not that special at the beginning so that the plea bargain here, this high profile case, could be you know, more of a carrot and less of a stick for mm -hmm. him. That it's less about him not caring and more about him having the chance to make a name for himself, kind of positively motivating mm -hmm. rather than negatively motivating. That's an interesting thought, sure. So we get the sequence where Caffey is just brooding. This is the shot where, of course, Sorkin has his little cameo sitting at the bar oh, being yeah. the world's most odious asshole. Yep. <laughs> Explaining his it. life as a lawyer to a pretty girl in a bar. <laughs> ah, it's terrible. Uh, it's yes, so bad. Yes, it is. I'm always happy to see Sorkin. I think he's so lovely in his cameo in The Social Network mm. where he's interviewing Zuckerberg and Sean Parker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's got a certain... He's not a good screen actor in particular. Sure. I think. I wonder if he would read a little better on stage because he is quite big in his in his acting. But yeah, it's always... Musical theater MFA. I mean, so BFA. So much me. musical theater. So <laughs> yeah. much musical theater. It's wild we don't get a quote from Sondheim anywhere. You film. know, unless there is one buried in there, and I just haven't found it. I mean, it yet. 
nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around, is basically <laughs> what she says. It's basically what she says. I think she says not on my watch, but, not on my watch, but I definitely maybe. heard nothing's going to harm you in my brain. I'm just saying. But you hear that constantly. I do. In the I voice do. of Billy Crudup <laughs> from The Morning Show. And I regret nothing. If anyone out there has watched The Morning Show, and statistically, I know that none of you have. <laughs> I th- have we talked about this on a podcast recently? I, I feel like have. it's come up. That might have just been it in a private have. conversation. You know those podcasts that we do when the mics I aren't do. turned on? <laughs> I do. <laughs> this takes us all the way to the arraignment. We decide that our boys are going to plead not guilty. We get our investigation montage. We get this wonderful sequence, particularly that sequence of shots, the montage sequence of shots from outside the window as we're pushing in yeah. slowly. It's a great set. I'm looking more and more at sets these days. I love the production design in this apartment or townhouse or whatever it is that it's he's in. really interesting, right? Yeah. Because that is definitely a real like Georgetown brownstone because we see it from so the cool. street and that mm-hmm. is clearly like a real DC street. But then we also do these like weird montage push-ins and we're pushing into the set that we are shooting the whole thing on. Yeah. So they must have built a fake facade. They must have. Oh, I, th- I think that is my maybe. take on it at least is that they built that apartment so thoroughly that they even built the facade so that we could shoot in through the window. That's so cool. It's gorgeous. We haven't talked at all about Rob Reiner because no. Rob Reiner, for all that he is a, great man and a great advocate for cinema and and has directed many of our favorite films he doesn't have much of a fingerprint does he workman yeah yeah and we of course love our journeyman directors here but Mm -hmm. he's an interesting There's some interesting lighting that's happening in here uh i think at the seafood restaurant in particular and isn't that like a weird a weirdly lit and like composed sequence so cool yeah i don't i don't know why the lighting is so sexy in there but in a place that is clearly very divey and not special so (laughs) they well we'll fix it with lighting and you know what they did what's particularly weird is that the cinematographer on this film robert richardson we have seen his work previously because he shot born on the fourth of july which obviously has a lot of you know stern masculine courtroom similarity Mm -hmm. with this film but this feels completely different Interesting. It's odd that, yeah. yeah, he shot Born on the Fourth of July and then shot <laughs> three movies in a row with Oliver Stone, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, and JFK. Wow. And then comes on to do A Few Good Men. He'll go on to do Natural Born Killers. He'll do Kill Bill 1 and 2. He will really? shoot The Aviator with Scorsese. Wow. Which is a great looking film. That's interesting. Yeah, nothing really caught my eye about the cinematography in this, except that, like I noticed, huh, not a whole lot going on with the cinematography here. But again... We've already spent $19.5 million True. on our top three cast members. Mm-hmm. We've got a deep bench as far as the cast goes. We've got 200 real-life Marines filling in as extras throughout the wow. film. There's just not a lot of money. I can't imagine yeah. there was a lot of time. Well, and you don't need to do a lot with something like this. Again, it, it was a stage play. The, the magic is in the dialogue, so you really don't need to make it super fancy yeah. visually. Which is one of the things, I think, that, that makes Sorkin's take on writing for the stage very suitable for television. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. that it's, it's pretty cheap to produce. Yeah, that's a good point. So this takes us to the midpoint of the movie. And way past the midpoint of my notes, because honestly, the rest of the film is going to be set largely yeah. in the courtroom. Yeah, you can't really do it beat by beat. It's unless you're just right, it's, it's reading just like very, the stenographer's notes. Yeah, it's very, very mechanical <laughs> yeah. from here on out. So we're going to move pretty quick, I think. Mm-hmm. We start with Ross and Kathy giving their opening statements. This is when we get the very brief scene with uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., who yep. is already so lovely, He's so great. charming, yeah. so poised. I think it's a really nice, very short performance. And then wildly. Christopher Guest. Christopher Guest as shows the doctor. up. Yeah. Weird, right? It was weird. Yeah, that that was oddly cast. Now, Christopher Guest is 
more of a dramatic actor at that point in his career than now, I would say. Sure, interesting. But it's still, yeah, very, very weird, particularly with his little wire-rimmed glasses. Yeah. And yeah, it's a very Christoph Waltz kind of performance. <laughs> it's a, you know, just not to put too fine a point on it. It's a very Nazi doctor kind of performance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is where we get that uh, back and forth between Sam and Galloway, where he gives his point of principle and she right. gives her point of pragmatism that she likes to feel defended. From there, we also move into the date, which is very brief and very warm. Is sure. there... The intimation of a romance obviously is in this film, but it's almost informed more than it is present. It is almost, Agreed. oh, this is our leading man and our leading lady. They probably are going to develop probably feelings for each other. they're going to want to, yeah. But no kiss, no sex scene, no mm. even romantic tension at the end of the movie. Is that yeah, to the film's weird. benefit or does it work against the overall emotional impact? Mm, it feels pretty half-baked, come to think of it, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I think so, but... I don't know. I'm not sure that I mind it because it's not ultimately in its last movement. It's not Caffey's film. It's not a film about this guy. It is a film about the successful operation of this system. It is mm-hmm. a film that makes you feel proud and safe to be an American because the yeah. system works, damn it. Well, I'm thinking now, like they when, when they set it up, the first person that we follow is Galloway. Yeah. I'd never think of her as the protagonist. She's not the one driving the action. Absolutely. Interesting. Maybe maybe not perfectly structurally sound. <laughs> From there, we move into Noah Weil testifying in probably my favorite scene in the film. Honestly, He's really great. He's so I don't know why. <laughs> we get this weird recapitulation of the beat where Kathy goes to the newsstand to exchange aphorisms with the owner of the news. I don't know what that is doing, except that it gets us out of the house and and out of his car for long mm-hmm. enough to Martinson to sneak into the back seat. Yeah. Cruz's response to suddenly seeing Martinson in the back seat in his rearview mirror is so good. Yeah, it's it is great. Very, very, for some reason, very, very Rob Lowe in the Western, right? It's just, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I think that Markinson coming back, the only reason it doesn't work for me, like I, I love him being in the car, that's cool. But the two conversations that uh, Kathy then has with him, like how is it not obvious to you that this is a man that you need to be on watch? You know what I mean? It seems yeah. very clear to me. It does. It it maybe seems as though Caffey is expecting the armed guards outside of his door to be keeping a better eye on Markinson because he has that line about, you know, them failing to do their duty when he comes in, dresses in his ceremonial uniform, puts the nickel plated mm-hmm. revolver in his mouth, et cetera, et cetera. Markinson returning to the plot feels like fake stakes so that yeah. we can be invested in the ebb and flow of the courtroom drama. Hmm. further or, or more fully than we really are. It's like the logbooks, right? It's like the gambit at the end to bring in the two airmen from Andrews, right. who we learn at the end are going to get on the stand and say, no, sir, I have no memory of a flight coming in. <laughs> it's all pantomime. It's all theatricality, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a huge part of this kind of court proceeding. Yeah. It's, it's about the story of who is winning and the story of who is losing, particularly when you have a judge as capricious as this guy, which I kind of love. I love the judge. What a great performance, too. Oh, my God. His response when Jessup isn't yes. respecting him sufficiently. <laughs> so good. His name is J.A. Preston. He worked a lot in TV, but only like an episode here and an episode there and then has, yeah, a bit of a run in movies, but is absolutely bringing what you want him to bring. That's right? great. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really great energy. Mm-hmm. From there, we get Kiefer Sutherland, I do declare, uh, there yeah. on the stand giving King his... James Bible, <laughs> my, 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 <laughs> so military, God, country, core, whatever it is. that intercut with Markinson, who just came back to the movie. 
taking his own life. Yeah. Then we get the admission that it was Dawson that tells Downey about the mm-hmm. order rather than Kendrick directly, which Kathy takes as a huge hit, it's even so though weird. it seems yeah. as though that's that's a minor technicality. But I, I agree. Guess being if, caught if out both in a lie. Them, but you know. yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Galloway leaves and Sam tells Kathy that his father was a great lawyer, but Kathy is better. He then gets in his car and chases Galloway through the rain and apologizes, uh-huh. which is the closest that through we get to like a real romantic moment. Yeah, and I love that it is a real romantic, a real romantic moment structured around you and I are good lawyers. We should be good lawyers together. Let's do this. <laughs> let's let's put Jessup yeah. on the stand. Yeah, I like that. We cut back to the apartment. This is the moment when Cruz gives his Nicholson impression, which is it's not good, but it's, it's really charming how not good it is. I love it. I really yeah. like it. I mean, it's yeah. clearly Nicholson. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. We set the stage here for the final confrontation with Galloway advising at the last moment, advising Caffey not to go for it if he feels that Jessup is not taking the bait. He will have an opportunity to step back. I wonder if that's a William Goldman edition as well. It could be. It just feel it's just the right kind of like applying pressure to the final scene. Yeah. Although it it also feels quite Sorkinian too, because this is this is all about are you going to step up? Are you going to swing? Are you going to dare to fail, right? Are yeah, you going to yeah. be all that you can be? Or sure. are you going to take the escape hatch? Are you going to take the opportunity hmm. to not try? That's kind of Sorkin That's as well. True. That's yeah. true. But certainly the way it's done, I think, is handled very nicely here. Mm-hmm. Jessup is sworn in, and I mean, this is it. This is the reason for the movie. This is yeah. why this film is on the AFI Top 100. This is why people know it. This is, it's just brilliant like it it is is. just so incredibly good beat for beat and i think a real testament to to everyone involved right to kevin bacon Mm -hmm. to tom cruise to jack nicholson that they are all present and at this incredibly heightened sorkin level right Mm -hmm. sorkin does not write naturalistic dialogue he doesn't write the way that people really talk he doesn't even write the way that we think that people really talk he writes in these elliptical arcs and yes. this gorgeous play of of contrast and contradiction and complexity it's 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 fantastic and it's maybe never better than this yeah it's interesting you were talking about nicholson's maybe lack of facility with the language mm. and even in this final and best cut that they got there is a weird moment where he loses breath yeah you, did you notice yeah, that did. it has to I take did. it again yeah. yeah i mean it is like classical music you know there's yeah. so many arpeggios like you've got to really be on your game following along here and i love what you just mentioned too first kathy's saying to jessup you know to call him by the right articles or whatever it is like everyone trying to get respect from everybody else and how that's like the tipping point that takes jessup over the edge and the judge saying you will address me as your honor or judge i know i've earned it yeah. it's just all really pitch perfect it, it really is it's, it's extremely strong and yeah the the way that we you're right it is like music because we are modulating our, our tone here we are mm-hmm. absolutely ascending into melodrama mm-hmm. in the most beautiful and and yeah orchestral way it, it's yeah. so striking and i love i cannot praise enough tom cruise's handling of the sorkin dialogue yeah. right sorkin is Let's be honest, the hardest writer of dialogue, probably, right? Probably. Unless you're talking about Woody Allen, because Allen includes all of those little stutters and, and yes. all of that awkwardness that Sorkin painstakingly removes from naturalistic there dialogue. There are no ums or ers. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is much more tight than, than that. I, I, think, I think he's a very challenging writer. It's certainly very difficult to read. Oh, I'm and sure. I wouldn't. I mean, I would. I would love to have the opportunity to deliver Sorkin dialogue yeah. because I'm a theater kid too, but yes, it would, would be an it. incredibly daunting challenge. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
Speaking really quick, though, of musicality, can we say for a minute how bad the soundtrack is? The score sucks. It sucks. Wall to wall. Yeah. Extremely bad, yeah. I don't know what I was expecting for it, but it did feel like bad 90s TV, like just the worst kind of synth. Nothing was happening that elevated the material. My favorite bit of external score, if you could call it that, was the thunderstorm during the court, <laughs> during the courtroom scene, which might be, you know, maybe a little bit on the nose, but I'm here for it. It's yeah. OK. The, the score for this is written by Mark Scheiman, who generally writes comedy scores. He writes the score for oh, When Harry Met Sally, which sounds a lot like this movie sure. now that I think of it. He writes for City Slickers and for Sleepless in Seattle, for First Wives Club, for Patch Adams. Like it's a lot of that huh. kind of kind of quirky, kind of offbeat. It's really strange. It is particularly striking when we cut to the credits at the end of the film. Yeah. And it's just this weird... It's exactly the same phenomenon as The West Wing on TV, where no matter what happens in the closing moment of the episode, and it is oftentimes, you know, incredibly dramatically heady, mm -hmm. and then we cut to this plinky-plunky, snuffy Walden music <laughs> over the closing credits, even when that is absolutely not thematically appropriate. So we get this suspended moment of doubt. We get this moment when Kathy is considering, maybe I'm not going to push this. And he looks back at the table and Sam's like, no. And Galloway's like, no. And he's like, you know what, though? I think maybe I will. And you're right. It's that, it's that turn as Jessup gets down off the stand. And we really, you know, confront each other's domains of authority. Right. And I like, didn't dismiss you. Whether it's about actual respect. Yeah, you're right. I didn't dismiss you. And you will call me by my rank, you know. Yeah. It's, it's really strong. It's very much men being man, right? Man being manly man in a manly man arena is <laughs> what Sorkin does. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. I like and how man arena reminds me of ballerina. Sweet. <laughs> that's what they call a male ballerina, right? <laughs> man arena? <laughs> oh, God, that sounds like some awful, like, alt-right man sphere. Awful. Like, awful. we're rebranding male ballerinas to man arenas. <laughs> We've had our masculinity erased for too long. Gross. <laughs> And that is really the end of the film. Mm -hmm. We get the closing moment, I suppose, with Dawson, which is... And that moment really surprised me because for all of the you can't handle the truth that I remembered, I did not recall this final gut punch line. Officer when... on deck. Uh, no, it wasn't that one. Oh. Officer on deck, also good. But no, uh, you're right. That's the, that's the final. But I, I was thinking of when Downey says, we didn't do anything wrong. And Dawson said... Yeah, we did. Like, we were supposed to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. Yeah. We were supposed to fight for Willie. Yeah. I cried. I was like, holy smokes. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. I wish we'd articulated that thread because we uncovered that thread a little earlier that the reason that no one had taken action against Willie was that Dawson would have kicked her ass, right? As yeah. Wild says, he would have kicked my behind. Yeah. Like, I wish we'd uncovered that a little earlier in the story and maybe mm -hmm. i don't know just, just just lived in that space a little more but you're right we come to a very good moral conclusion though ultimately the moral conclusion is the respect that we now have for kathy right that he has proved himself sure. we have that moment at the door with the salute the officer on deck mm -hmm. and the salute and the rising music coming up yeah and it's a it's a very good moment it is though it is weird to close out this movie with tom cruise saluting because yeah. it really takes me back to Born on the Fourth of July. It really takes me yeah. back to Top Gun. Sure. Like, you spent a lot of time in and around uniforms in the mm -hmm. relatively short career that you've had. So like 10 years, right? This is 1992. So yeah. he's been in the industry for 11 years since Endless Love. Mm -hmm. Lots of military movies. Yeah. I, 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 again, just wonder if that's just a male thing. It's certainly Sports something. movies and military movies. Sports like. movies and military movies. Yeah. That's what we make for man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and pornography. <laughs> Speaking of which, no, we're not really speaking of which. Let's move on to put this movie on our big list of every Tom Cruise movie ever. What's your gut feeling? Give me just a, a top half, bottom half. 
Way top half. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. This is among the best films that we've watched, I think. I really enjoyed it. I think it's very good. It's, it's, uh, I, I always feel like the oldest lady in the world. I'm like, they don't make them like this anymore, but I feel like they don't, they you know? Don't. They, they I mean, just except don't. Except they do. They make them all the time. CBS shows five of these a week because this is what NCIS is. This is like uh, the biggest TV uh, franchises okay. in yeah, the yeah, world yeah. are this now. But you're right. They don't make them at this level. They don't make them with this script. They don't make them with this cast right. anymore. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. So right now on the list, Top Gun, Rain Man, Legend, and then Far and Away at number four. Uh, I, I think it's better than Rain Man. I think I could easily yeah. be persuaded. Yeah. I, I, th- I think it is. I think overall it hangs together better. It's still a little bit too long. It's still a little bloated in the middle, which is a thing that happens pretty frequently, I think. Yeah. A little more clarity, a little yeah. more focus, a little more discipline. You're right. In what, what would you call it? The second half of that long first act, right? Yeah. Because it's basically a, adapted from the stage show. I'm sure it's basically a two act piece. It mm-hmm. splits right down the middle, pre-courtroom drama and then the courtroom drama. Right. Yeah. If we shortened that first hour and 10 minutes mm-hmm. even if we just shortened just it down to an hour i mm-hmm. think it would gain a lot of pace but yeah but ultimately it's just very satisfying to me rain man was yes. too like there's a sense of some kind of emotional reward for having watched the movie i just felt good right. afterwards and, i don't know a real in a way rest- that i didn't really as much with rain man Go sure. ahead. and it's a real restoration fantasy too yeah. right? because it is an affirmation that the system works it is an affirmation that everything is going to be okay because in the end bad people will be hoisted on their own petard and and good will out like sure. the system is in place and it is ensuring the natural process of justice mm. which of course is patently untrue in the yeah, real world yeah. but hey but can be lovely it's a nice in it's a nice comforting fantasy yeah. for sure i think i'm happy putting it at number two, number right two. above Rain Man. I love that. I don't think there's another performance in this film that is as good as Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. I don't think there's a that performance in this film that is as good as Valeria Galino in Rain Man, honestly. But I think mm. the crew's performance is even better. Yes. And what we get from this huge and complex ensemble is is a diverse take on the best screenwriter working in mm-hmm. 1992, probably, right? I, I, I think that the Sorkin of it all really elevates this film above Rain Man. I agree. And certainly You Can't Handle the Truth is is just an unkillable line. It's just an unkillable yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So there it is. Number two on the list, A Few Good Men. That is going to do it for this week. The Last Star in Hollywood is a Next Word production, in case you were wondering. And if you would like to support Next Word, if you would like to get access to bonus episodes of this show and of my genre fiction podcast, Stars and Swords, if you would like some of those unscripted, unedited, off-the-cuff, behind-the-scenes episodes that we record Mm -hmm. from time to time, you guys, we've been playing Hogwarts Legacy. Oh, my God. And we are almost definitely going to talk about Hogwarts Legacy (laughs) on a bonus show over on the Patreon page. If you would like to hear us talk about... Honestly, all things Harry Potter. We're probably, probably going to talk for at least an hour about Harry <laughs> Potter, I imagine. If you would like to hear that, patreon.com slash next word. Your support makes everything that we do here at Next Word possible mm-hmm. and saves us from having to talk about ads, right? As much as <laughs> yes. we wanted a Casper ad earlier in this episode. Yes. This episode, not sponsored by Casper. So our heartfelt thanks to Leslie Skipa, Louise and Dallas, Megan Louder, Phoebe, Art Kilmer, and Kimberly Bear. Thank you so much, our Thank superstar you guys patrons. So much. Real rock stars. Thank you all so much. Join us next week for our 16th episode of The Last Star in Hollywood, in which, well, we stay in a legalistic mode because next week, the adaptation of John Grisham's novel, The Firm. Next week, we've got some Holly Hunter. I'm Ooh. so excited, you guys. I hope you will join <laughs> us for that. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs>